Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So it is uh, primary day uh, in America, and it is also uh, close to 24 hours after the uh, explosion of all Democrats' hopes, wishes, and dreams in New York State uh, as the um, special master appointed to deal with the uh, egregiously unconstitutional map that had been fo- foisted upon the state uh, in the wake of redistricting uh, that was an attempt to squeeze as many Democratic seats as was humanly possible out of the state delegation, uh, the map thrown out and the uh, the special master has now issued the new uh, map that um, that is um, incredibly amusing for some of us. My congressman, uh, Gerald Nadler, finds himself in uh, now in the same district as Carolyn Maloney, uh, both of them, you know, uh, 578 years old, both of them in the Congress for 35 to 40 years uh, both of them it, 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 intellectually and ideologically inter- interchangeable from neighborhoods that are basically intellectually and ideologically interchangeable. And yet, uh, and yet, of course, they were, um, you know, the efforts were uh, constantly being made to make sure that they could both serve. And now they have they have been shoved into the same district. Very amusing. Don't like either of them, uh, though I enjoy uh, Nadler personally. And uh there's uh, uh, Mondaire Jones, who is a very, very, very radical congressman, has been put in a district with um, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney. Sean Patrick Maloney, who runs the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And there seem to be rumblings and murmurings that, that Maloney should just, uh, for the sake of, uh, of racial comedy, step aside and let Mondaire Jones, who is a uh, freshman, uh, just take his district because otherwise it's not fair. Um, stuff like that. Anyway, chickens are so coming to which, home to roost. To which Patrick Maloney announced a primary challenge against against that representative on Twitter. Yes, because he was he, absolutely stunned. Yeah, by this, he's, stun- uh, lack he's of stunned. Decorum. He's stunned that uh, that uh, a fellow um, ambitious politician would not want to simply give up his seat uh, because of redistricting. Anyway, uh, the point here is that uh, Doe has been writing about this brilliantly for a couple of years and uh, wrote a piece a couple of weeks. You know that. You know, Democrats talked themselves into the idea that A, gerrymandering was bad and B, they had to do it better and they had to be more egregiously awful about it than Republicans were. They then went into this uh, full bore and have had their hats handed to them. This is going to be the first seriously competitive set of elections in New York State, with the exception of one district in New York State um, uh, that has been competitive, that is the one on Staten Island, which has flopped between Democrat and Republican for a couple of times. The um, you know the state has basically was already gerrymandered in a way to make it as pleasing and comfortable to Democrats as possible, and then they just decided to go the extra seventy-two thousand miles and have basically had their heads cut off. And so the irony is uh, manifold and manifest. So it's probably not that important because what's important are the primary results tonight. We don't know what those are going to be, obviously. A couple of interesting things. One, we should talk about the Democrats and the amount of money they're spending because uh, as was reflected in 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party and the candidates relating to the Tea Party, uh, because districts have become increasingly uncompetitive, primaries are effectively elections. 
and that's true in blue states for blue state districts and things like that. And a colossal amount of money is being spent inside the Democratic Party by PACs and third parties and dark money and all of that uh, to fight the ideological battles uh, to save the Democratic Party from its radical wing by more moderate people. There's a very good story in Politico about this. Um, a lot of it's centering on Israel, but not just uh, Israel exclusively, but we're talking about twice as much money being spent on television ads in primaries in 2022 as was spent in 2018 in the Democratic Party. And then, of course, you have the MAGA versus non-MAGA fights all over the country in Republican primaries. Noah, your thoughts. Uh, it's just a really disheartening state of affairs across the board, um, because tonight what we're probably going to be privy to is a lot of very uh, what would otherwise be in any other political environment, unelectable figures emerging victorious in Republican primaries, uh, not because they're quote unquote MAGA. I mean, we use MAGA as a shorthand now to mean um, willing to express views that are unexpressible in polite company. Um, because they are deservedly anathematized. Uh, and we talk, I mean, in, and this has, this has escaped Donald Trump's control. And we saw, this is, it, we saw some of that to the degree that um, it, during Trump's presidency, when Alabama voters, for example, knew exactly who the candidate was in that race, uh, the race, uh, special election race. Um, and it wasn't Mo Brooks, who was the Trump uh, endorsed candidate. It was... Um, uh, the, what's the name of the sheriff? The sheriff who lost his election to a Democrat in Alabama, Roy Moore. Roy Moore was the guy who offended uh, elite sensibilities, which are otherwise understood just to be polite, rational uh, 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 understanding of uh, what political dynamics in America should be. Um, they know they knew who the craziest son of a bitch was in that race, to phrase to use Tom Massey's phrase, and they supported him. And we're likely going to see something like that in Pennsylvania, um, where one candidate who is not endorsed either by the Club for Growth or Donald Trump, both of whom have been fighting each other out for these endorsements, is likely to emerge with the, the Republican Senate nomination. Very competitive race. She might not win, Kathy Barnett, um, but she's probably in the lead um, at this point. Likewise, um, you have some people, you know, Madison Cawthorn has been the subject of criticism by Donald Trump but he may emerge from his primary in North Carolina. There is a, a gubernatorial race in Idaho where the Lieutenant governor is trying to primary the incumbent Republican governor uh, and who's, she's made a name for herself by um, saying some of the most radical racist things she possibly can and uh, elevating figures like Nick Fuentes, who is a white supremacist who finds himself in good odor on the right. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of this. And, and of course, Doug Mastriano, who's running for Pennsylvania's governor uh, governorship and who's going to run away with that nomination. And he's an insurrectionist and he was in the, uh, on restricted ground on January 6th and has made no bones about it. Um, and that's the state of affairs in Republican politics, particularly in primary races. Now, are they cutting off their noses ahead of November? Quite likely, but it's not impossible that a lot of these candidates are going to emerge victorious just by virtue of the environment, which is so toxic for Democrats. Fun. So it's fun times here in America. I mean, what's 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 interesting is 
uh, this um, extreme polarization. You've got Democrats fighting inside the Democratic Party against radicals. You've got Republicans inside the party. Um, you've got sort of party leaders attempting to forestall the takeover by uh, at the grassroots level of candidates who no longer seem all that interested in observing constitutional niceties um, and, and, and increasingly impotent and unable to do so, it would appear. And these are just the phenomena under which we live. It, 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 it raises a point that people have been making since Buffalo about the effort to pin the shooting on Tucker Carlson and Fox News. Uh, and that is to say, is Tucker Carlson the author of the replacement theory craze that leads people to do things like the shooter did in Buffalo? Or is his flirtation with this idea a reflection of where the general Republican conservative increasingly radical body politic is going in its understanding of America, the crisis in the United States and, and where to go? And therefore, Tucker is simply playing into his audience rather than leading his audience. And I think probably the results today are going to be a very interesting key to understanding that distinction, because that distinction really does matter. It matters more. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think it is the latter. I think I think his show is a reflection of what's already out there in all these communities and platforms. uh, There was a really insightful uh, thread on Twitter by someone I, I've never heard of before. I don't, I don't think it's not a blue check or anyone of any particular note. And um, the point of the thread was to say that exactly what you described, John, is happening on the right, that, that Tucker is um, merely feeding back to his audience what they're already interested in and excited about, but that on the left, um, the opposite is still the case, uh, meaning the media sort of gives the liberal-leaning Americans the message. They tell them, this is what you need to be caring about now. This is where we're going. We're concerned with this identity. We're concerned with, with this injustice. And I think there's some truth to that. It's an interesting distinction because... What you have, I think, on the right is a congenitally suspicious, is basically Americans who now identify on on the right side of the letter are congenitally suspicious of grandees, institutions, big people, whatever. And so um, they're not going to take, they don't follow blindly, with the exception maybe of Trump, but Trump is kind of a, a, a figure is like the er figure of this. Like, you can't trust anything. You can't trust anybody. Everybody's corrupt. Everybody is, you know, there's not, there's, there's no, nowhere to turn. Whereas liberals and leftists like their institutions from what we can tell. I mean, they're very, they often get very disappointed in them and they they complain that, you know, the New York Times is not being tough enough or hard enough or isn't calling Trump a liar in every second le- word of its headline or something like that. But generally speaking, they trust what they're being told by the people who lead them. They like their politicians from what we can tell. 
They, they tend to be admiring and comfortable with their politicians. This is no longer the case on the right. The right doesn't like the big guys, whoever they are, wherever they are. And that includes the big, if you're Fox, uh, according to a certain body of opinion on the right, you've already sold out because you're not tough enough or you're not anti-establishment enough. You also want to go to cocktail parties in Georgetown or whatever. And it is an interesting cultural difference that is and very key. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and so there's, there's just more evidence for it too, because if you think of where all the, the radical stuff on the right <clears throat> has bubbled up from, um, it's all these, you know, quote, dark web figures and, and below and these characters like Menchus Molebug a few years ago, Menchus Goldbug, Moldbug uh, yeah. a few years ago. Curtis Yarvin. Yeah, exactly. Curtis Yarvin. Like these completely obscure people who just sort of got a, got a fan base online and they ended up sort of becoming substantial media personalities and, and infusing the right with these weird ideas that are only now reflected um, in sort of mainstream right media. That's not the way it negative. happens on the left. On the I left, mean, it, it comes from the, from, the, from the academy on down. But much of the, that appeal is negative, right? Because it's not as though they've read this guy's manifesto, which I wrote about in my first book on Unjust. Because it's incoherent. You mean, you're talking about you're talking, you're Mulba, Curtis Yarvin, right? Yes, the dark, yeah. dark enlightenment figures, yeah, the as they call themselves. Yes, yeah. Um, which is you know counter enlightenment, um, which has some traction on the right, but it has traction on the right not because these ideas are particularly compelling. I find his his writings to be incomprehensible. Um, it's because that the people that they annoy should be annoyed that they don't like those people, right? And so yeah. anybody who's a countercultural figure gets that kind of traction. Well, and it's, it's not reaction, just, oh, they're ahead. just being reactionary for the sake of being reactionary rather than actually having any sort of compelling, um, deeper intellectual project, I think. Although I will say to the to the idea that the that the left is is actually more uh, coheres more around what their institutions and, and say and what their politicians tell them to do. There's a and we'll see it in the primaries today a little bit. There's a bubbling up among the progressives about challenging the centrist. I mean, the reason that Biden has had such a disastrous presidency in terms of getting Congress to do anything he wants is that progressives are holding out against him. And you've got Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren all backing progressive candidates now that are going up against the Biden-like centrist that that the Democrats are running. So there is, and obviously the squad being the loudest, um, you're seeing this on the issue of Israel supporting candidates in the Democratic Party and progressives pushing back against, you know, PACs and, and uh, organizations that support Israel sending money to Democrats. So there, there's a lot of, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Tea Party era in the Republican Party in terms of where it might be headed. Okay, I, I agree with that. Although some of the pushback here that's going on is a pushback Unlike in the Tea Party election of 2010, which was about dethroning establishment figures and putting in new blood, new voices, new people reflective of a new consensus, what's going on this year is an effort to push back against the squad, to de-squadize the Democratic Party because the squad and people like the squad have had success in the last four years in, in getting purchase. And this is the pushback inside the party um, and we'll see how successful it is. Like, you know, obviously the anti-Trump pushback that, you know, the anti-insurgent pushback in 2010 was in the Republican Party was incredibly unsuccessful. Uh, in 2014, there was a kind of merger of the old guard and the new guard in, in, in how they structured the Senate races in 2014, which the Republicans, you may remember, 
blew away, right? They won nine for nine because they combined the states where a more anti-establishment voice was the good voice candidates were there but but states that needed to be in a more moderate frame like Colorado you know they got Cory Gardner and Cory Gardner won his seat so it only got Cory Gardner as a result of an establishmentarian backroom deal right and get right that put benefited everybody that's right anyway but it's interesting because that was kind of a merger here you have an effort by grandees in the Democratic Party to take back the Democratic Party a little bit from a galloping uh, radicalization Even so, I would say that there is warmer feeling toward Biden and sort of like the old line Democrats among the radicals in the Democratic Party than there is in the Republican Party among this kind of grassroots, these grassroots radicals toward high figures in the Republican Party. I mean, if you take Mitch McConnell as the best, Mitch McConnell is the most successful Senate majority leader of our lifetimes and somebody who has empowered conservative politics, politicians, you know, he has put, you know, he's, he is why the Dobbs decision will have been the Dobbs decision, all kinds of things that he has done. And he is viewed with incredible suspicion and, and, and and not just because of Donald Trump, like before Donald Trump, there was this idea in 2012, 2013, 2014, that McConnell was a sellout, establishmentarian blah 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 so so i'm just saying that there is much more the 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 if you're a big person and this is where populism really has is the key voice is the key f- adjective to describe or ism or ist you know to describe the republican party they don't like you're too big for your britches even if you like us we're going to take you down there's something wrong with you I mean, not just populism, but it's a component feature, which is a, a, a celebration of persecution and, and persecution complexes. And before we get off the the, the paranoia of the right, <clears throat> I want to, because I wrote a, bit, a little bit about this this morning, I'm going to put it up on, online later. I want to get into a, a bit about what we were talking about yesterday. And you talked about briefly today with this whole promotion of this idea of this great replacement theory, um, this paranoid persecution complex that apparently animated the shooter in Buffalo and has been uh, get granted undue legitimacy by a Republican elected official, officials and uh, conservative commentators. So there's a bit of pushback from the right uh, in the last 24 hours on this notion that re- Republicans invented this idea from whole cloth, right? Because for the better part of this century, you've had activists on the left and Democratic politicians espousing this idea of demographic demographic change in America that would deliver to them a prohibitive majority in Congress and political power that would last a generation. Um, And that's whenever that's discussed by the left, it's just okay. But when it's noticed by the right, then it becomes a problem. This is the narrative that they're addressing. Um, This is wholly unfounded in my view, because it A, misunderstands the theory that Democrats um, espoused and B, discounts a lot of its failures. First of all, it, it misunderstands the theory advanced by uh, John Judas and Roy Teixeira uh, in the 2002 book, Emerging Democratic Majority, which posited that uh, Democrats would, would benefit from demographic change based on a straight line projection, that demo, dem, those demographics would continue to vote Democratic. But it was an organic phenomenon. It was entropic. It would happen naturally. No one was doing this to anyone. 
first misapprehension. Second misapprehension on the right is the fact that this theory was wholly wrong. Immigrants did not vote in lockstep with Democrats. In fact, they're trending away. Democrats okay. did not maintain control over the working class. And the dominance of major metropolitan areas, which was central to their theory, has not materialized. In fact, it's they've declined in as along with the pandemic. OK, I'm going to push back. I got to push back on you a little bit because you've done two interesting things here because you've raised this idea that, you know, uh, Democrats were pushing a positive smiley face Disney version of replacement theory and Republicans are saying, hey, no fair. You're just saying when you say it, it's fine when people blow, you know, blow the whistle and say, you see, they they're actually openly advocating for our replacement or for the replacement of European Americans or whatever we want to call it. It's true. I mean, Tajera and and Tajera and Judas may have been wrong that uh, there was going to be an emerging democratic that the democratic majority was going to be solid for two generations because of the demographic trends they witnessed at the beginning of the 21st century. But um, it took 10 or 12 or 14 years for that to start emerging, and uh, that the fact that the country was way more complicated. It came as a great shock to people to discover every time they do a census that the white population of the United States was not, in fact, in precipitous decline. The white population of the United States in 20, you know, in the 20 teens remained somewhere between 72 and 74 percent. But if you had been following the conversation about this over the course of the decade of the 2000s, you would not have believed that to be the case. The general number people were throwing out is if you add in this, you do that, how people do, I, did, I described them to all this, it was really in the 50s or the low 60s, okay? So I think that it's a stronger point than you realize that what, that what certain rat, including Mencius Moldbug and others were responding to was this weird triumphalist argument that America was going to be a majority minority country within a generation and that this was going to change us and it was going to change us in wonderful ways because it was going to disempower the right and its ability to win elections. And this was going to be a recipe for progressive dominance forever. First of all, that, of course, is fool is, is, is as my grandmother say, narish kite. Like that's not how politics works. Political ideological views are not static. That's one of the things people are learning about his, the Hispanic population in the United States. There, things are not monolithic. Things there are certain groups that are monolithic uh, for very complicated reasons. Black people tend to, the African American population tends to be ideological or, or partisanly monolithic to some great degree for all sorts of complicated reasons that may not last that much longer, but that certainly did not attach or attain with Hispanics. Um, but it it there's more to this. Okay. Well, but, in other uh, words, in other words, if you can say, "Oh, it's so wonderful that white people are no longer going to be the majority," and then somebody says, "My people are no longer going to be the majority. I have to do something about it," and does something evil and horrible, that doesn't mean you didn't say it because you did say it. I mean, Greg's everybody, every every liberal election analyst 
from 2008 when when the Obama surge started until Trump surprised the hell out of everybody in 2016 said we are inevitably moving toward a world in which multicultural people are going to be the dominant figures in elections and then Trump dug up a whole bunch of white people who hadn't voted before and they came out to the polls and voted nobody even knew they were there you know why because because this phalanx that I talked about that, that liberals like at the top of the media and their institutions, they didn't know they were there. And if they'd known they were there, they would have said, ah, they're not really there. And okay, if they said, so- ah, they're not really there, they would have said, well, they're there, but they're too drunk and on fentanyl to go vote. Okay. So allow me the runway to explain why this only advances my theory, because as the left has rejected complexity in favor of simplicity, the right has done precisely the same. Their simplistic narrative is someone is doing this to me. All these conditions are the result of some cabal that has, has it out for me and my interests. Rather than accepting the simplest explanation here, which is that Democrats utterly misread the conditions on the ground, uh, invented a narrative for themselves that was a happy fiction, that was psychologically uh, re- re- rewarding, And then it turned out to be wrong. And rather than revel in the wrongness of it and their vindication retroactively, they continue to adhere to this belief that there's some cabal at work. Likewise, um, and they get a lot of help from the The they here. You you they the Republicans paranoid problem right first Republicans paranoid right the Republican okay so when they so when the com the you know the left and their comrades in the media um, reflexively deem that which is true to be conspiratorial, Republicans have a deserved sense of uh, persecution because they they use the levers of cultural power to affect their designs. And it turns out that the the simple narrative is the true one. It turns out that it wasn't sophisticated Russian disinformation that produced Hunter Biden's laptop. There was just an idiot who did something dumb. It turns out that Chinese negligence probably produced the coronavirus, which has happened a lot. Chinese industrial accidents happen all the time. It wasn't a much more complex theory. So Republicans, rather than embrace the fact that their simplistic narratives turn out to be right, Occam's razor turns out to be right, they prefer to see themselves as being victimized rather than revel in the egg that's all over the faces of their political opponents. Can I can I add a few more points uh, to this? Just not not taking a side either way, but there's some weird stuff that's going on here. Uh, first of all, the, the fact that almost 100 percent, something in like 94, 95 percent of Americans report supporting things like interracial marriage, which has long been used as a measurement of, of uh, racial tolerance. So the idea that and, and Republicans have been since the last election waking up to the idea that there are lots of racial minorities that could be swayed to the Republican message, name not just Hispanic communities, but lots of Asian immigrants, lots of people who care about things that Republicans are suddenly showing strength on, particularly education and whatnot. So at the same time that supposedly, according to the mainstream media narrative, you know, white America and white conservative America is gripped by great replacement theory anxiety, they are also reaching, their, their uh, political consultants are reaching out to, to minorities to grow the coalition. So those two things are actually supposedly happening at the same time. But I would say that the main thing that strikes me about this conversation is that we're forgetting that for uh, particularly for 
condescending liberal uh, white Democrats, uh, there is, there's only the lens of race. They see all of this politics through the lens of race, whereas Republicans haven't until recently, and this is where I think Noah is getting to, to an important point, until recently, Republicans have rejected that, that lens and said, we're not going to do that. But now in a kind of weird defensive crouch, they are doing, some of them are doing that as well. But to avoid that and to actually strengthen uh, this, they have to stop doing what Noah, I think you're absolutely right, the Republican extremists are doing. But the vast majority of Americans don't vote and see themselves as a particular race anyway. They don't go to the polls thinking, as a white woman, I need to vote for X, Y, and Z. They tend to think as a parent, as a homeowner, as someone who's looking for a job, as someone who worries about inflation. So that th th this insistence on constantly bringing back to identity politics is a trap that Republicans really should, should not fall into. Abe? Yeah, I, it's a really interesting point because I think what's happening is sort of several different things are happening at once, and it's not all one thing. Um, what we're sort of leaving out of this discussion is that a lot of minorities are now realizing that the Democrats are failing them. So they're, so they're ready to drift rightward, to hear some right ideas. While that is happening, there's this, this like sort of inexorable maddening of the Republican mob. Right. Or of the of the right wing mob. Um, and that's a separate phenomenon. Um, and it, it makes it all the more tragic because there's such an opportunity here on the right, uh, right. To, to, to have some willing new audience members and, and potential, you know, comrades. Everyone ha has been seduced. I think this is one of the interesting facts because Rui Tejera was not seduced by his own theory. Rui Tejera looked at data in 2002, said, this is what's happening. All things being equal, and if certain kinds of trends continue, this is going to be a very favorable environment for Democrats in the first half of the 21st century. Then things happened, and Rui Tejera has an excellent substack in which he's saying, oh boy, that didn't really happen. And all sorts of things intervened, the financial crisis and the fentanyl crisis and and all kinds of things happen that mean that my theory is no longer extant and the Democrats are crazy to be pursuing the kinds of agenda items that maybe would have made sense had my theory proven to be correct. Now, somebody wrote a book about how Hillary Clinton was going to be president unless Rudy Giuliani stopped him, stopped her. I am very much a supporter of people ruefully acknowledging their error because I ruefully acknowledge my own, it happens. Um, but a lot of this is based on the hunger that people have for reading the stage instructions, for reading the, you know, for, for, for reading the cards that say, you know, smile or shake somebody's hand or, you know, thank you bracket. Meaning political consultants say, all things being equal, do X, Y, and Z to appeal to black people. Why? Black people will tend to vote Democratic. You have a lot of black people in your district. They don't turn out very much. So if you can goose their turnout, you can neutralize the advantage that Republicans have with white voters, all things being equal. You can sort of do that. Then that turns into a black people vote Democratic. What's more, they do so because the Democratic Party is good and the Republican Party is bad because the Democrat, black people vote for the Democratic Party 
because it's the not racist party and Republicans are the racist party. Therefore, everything Republicans do is racist. Therefore, if we they understand this, therefore, if we spend all our time talking about climate change, they'll know that they should vote for us anyway, because the Republicans are bad and we're good and we have their back, even though we don't really talk about it very much or blah, blah, blah. And it turns into this thing where political consultants say, or like good political consultants say, you know, you got to do X, Y, and Z to goose this number of people and maybe to suppress that number of people from voting where you want them to vote. And then you have kind of intellectuals, academics, and know-it-alls who say uh, the thing that is the the secondary fact is the primary fact, which is that blacks tend to vote Democratic. And therefore, you can play all kinds of games with them. Or white people will tend to vote Republican, so you can play all kinds of games with them. And that's how everything gets racialized. And that's how everything gets kind of... It's not simplistic. Occam's razor is not simplistic, right? Occam's razor is actually what you see before you, what, you're, what, the, what the evidence of your eyes is better than theories that seem to explain that what you're seeing right before you isn't what's really happening. That's Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is probably the right one. And But the corollary is always, there are always people trying to seduce you away from looking at things and seeing them as they are and telling you it's way more interesting to see the hidden hand behind everything. And everybody in... In, in the you know in the in the upper middle class elites in the United States is addicted to anti Occam's razorism. It's not inter- Occam's razor isn't interesting. You know, incumbents win elections. That's Occam's razor number one. Why we're not even sure why it's always happened. People know who they are. They don't know who the contender is. They they don't hate their lives, so they think things are going pretty well. Whatever it is. And then it's like, no, 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 we can do this. We can do that. We Here, you spend 100 and take Meg Whitman, spend $158 million of your own money, and we can reverse the rules of Occam's razor so that you can win a Senate election in California. This and is a, lot a very of this, seductive thing. And very, why is it very seductive? In part because of the breakdown of community. Because when you have a secret decoder ring that exposes to you the hidden workings of the world, it's a very warm and fuzzy feeling and a very small community of people share, have that, have access to that, to that decoder ring. And that's right. the sort of thing that creates community, creates a sense of mission and purpose. And it's incredibly important to the human condition. So it's an eternal struggle against human nature to even see the evidence of your eyes. Anyway, it's a sort of interesting. And, and, and so we have this, what do we know? We know if Republicans from now until November talked about inflation, how the Biden administration created the baby formula crisis, why things are still so expensive, why, I, there are sort of seven or eight different things. If they just talked about those and didn't talk about anything else, that uh, Democrats would be on the defensive every day. They don't have any answers. They would say, let's talk about all these other things, and the Republicans say, no, no, let's just talk about inflation. You know what? That's what we should really just talk about inflation. You sort of understand that's actually how Republicans slaughter Democrats in November. But that's not going to happen because when Democrats say 
that the shooter's manifesto is mainstream conservative Republican thinking, Republicans are going to spend a week saying, no, it's not. And you're the real racist. And we're not the real race. You're the racist. And you hate white people. And actually, we like black, but you hate white people. And then they're off to the races and they muddy their own message and they 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 don't go with the thing that's popular. They go with the thing that is controversial, that limits their audience, that puts off people who are less ideological. And that is the dynamic of 2022, that what's going to happen tonight is that it is likely that the people who want to scream about things that Americans don't care about are going to be the dominating figures after tonight's primary in a lot of these states, rather than the people who would say, let's talk about inflation. You know what? We'll talk about schooling. We'll talk about union, how schools are being, there's culture war stuff they can do. Schooling, CRT, a lot of stuff. But if they want to fight about replacement theory and who's, who's more victimized, whites or blacks in the United States, they are going to make it less likely rather than more likely that Republicans will prevail to the, in the extent to which Republicans could prevail in November because of the addiction to this complexity that you're taught, this kind of false complexity. Because, of course, one of the problems with complex Mencius mold bug theories is they're seductive because they're complex. The Shooter's Manifesto is 187 pages long. It's complex. It has 10,000 different arguments in it shoved into, into, into one place. But um, complexity is very important in explaining how the eye works. It is not necessarily important in explaining how social, how, how social organizations work, which are basically people stumbling along doing the best they can. <laughs> you know. And yeah, there's no conspiracy to force. If there were a conspiracy, if Democrats had a conspiracy to replace on immigration, they wouldn't be using... Uh, the uh, title 42 and the border like this is not that they would be doing it in a more clever fashion than they would be creating the backlash to their own efforts to do replacement to give them a little more credit than that anyway all right uh let me just uh talk to you for a minute about our friends at policy genius um why why would you get life insurance look if someone relies on you financially child, parent, even a business partner, life insurance gives you peace of mind that they'll have a financial question if something happens to you. And typically life insurance gets more expensive as you age. So it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. And by making it easier to compare your options from top companies, Policy Genius can help make sure you're not paying a cent more than you have to for the coverage you need. Look, if you maybe you already have some insurance, life insurance through work. But having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. And maybe you have a big life event coming up, whether you're graduating from school, planning a wedding, welcoming a baby, or switching jobs. Now's the time to protect your family's finances. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find the insurance you need at the right place. Head to policygenius.com to get started. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Its licensed agents are on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options and make decisions with confidence. And the Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. Doesn't add on extra fees, doesn't sell your info to third parties. 
has options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. And we should probably be talking about our friends at Bolin Branch. Those sheets, Noah sleeps on them. He's been sleeping on them for months and months and months. Beautiful pewter sheets, right, Noah? And they're the best organic cotton threads on earth, superior softness, better night's sleep, buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start, and they get softer with every wash. Listen, these sheets are made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by three U.S. presidents. They, they, they're super breathable, perfect for every season. You'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets, 100% free from toxins, no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. Bolin brand sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at bolinbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code COMMENTARY. Uh... Very quickly, the administration seems to have struck a deal with uh, Abbott Labs to reopen to get that baby formula processing plant reopened um, uh, that uh, was shut down owing to FDA, uh, you know, Narishkeit again. Um, and what's interesting is they made this deal. They're lowering they're lowering some standards so we can import formula from abroad. But it's going to take weeks and weeks uh, for the factory to get up and running again, apparently, uh, the Abbott factory. And it, it just strikes me that um, what, what's happened here with the Biden administration is that they have done, they created a problem that they have now supposedly solved, and the damage has been done. Because all people are going to remember is baby formula shortage and if Republicans and conservatives do their jobs right, that this was a created crisis by overweening by an overweening regulatory regime uh, empowered by the Biden administration. Christine, how do you how do you feel this is going to play? Well, it, I think for the people, particularly in conservative media, that have been following this for a while, it's it's it's. I mean, I'm glad that they're doing something, but it's too late, too little, too late in terms of its political utility. I think, especially since the messaging is remains sort of inconsistent. Um, they they never really did have a clear response that wasn't also highly defensive, as is the want of the Biden administration when it gets caught not knowing what's going on. Um, I mean, look, it's good for parents. Uh, it's not going to be a long term solution unless they deal with the regulatory issues that we talked about the other day. Um, but, you know, for parents who've been driving hours or desperately looking for, for formula, this hopefully will ease it. It just depends on how quickly the turnaround will be. It still looks like it'll be weeks and weeks before people start seeing uh, shelves restocked. Abe, can I just ask you this or bring up a point here about this regulatory overreach that led to this? But one of the the idea that what Republicans exist to do or conservatives are uh, exist to do is to ensure that uh, regulatory frenzy is checked and that businesses and companies, you know, for the, to to the extent possible, can do what they do best, which is produce products, bring them to market compete with others to make sure that pricing is fair and, and that, and that, you know, government gets involved um, and bad things can happen, but it's often very hard 
for that case to be made. It's a little like schooling stuff. Like it's a little hard to explain why bad educational theory may be responsible for the fact that your three, your, your third grader doesn't read very much, for example, or doesn't seem to like to read or whatever, right? Or seems to have difficulty reading. It, it, it requires a lot of intermediary, uh, intermediate steps. And the case against overregulation is very much the same, except that there are these moments when things explode onto the scene and we see the horror of what, what overregulation can do. And this is one of those moments and it's, it's just strikes me. It's very sticky. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about conservative thought generally, but one of the more challenging things is that so much of it is counterintuitive. Um, you know, you think, well, we have, we have this, you know, large bureaucracy with, why not have them ensure that products are safe? That makes sense. You know, and then we'll yet have to then, as you say, have to go back the steps of explaining how that goes wrong. But I think it's even more challenging today because the anti-regulatory message comes into conflict with this rising anti-corporatism on the right now, right? There's this complaint among certain types of new right-wingers um, that we've been rigging things in favor of corporations to screw our everyday Americans for too long. So we, we need to stick our hand in their business um, because they've been giving it to us. I would say the Biden administration has made this case incredibly easy to make by virtue of their own behaviors. You know, but Joe Biden lashed out. We talked about this at this reporter. If I'd have been a mind reader, you know, we would have been able to deal with this earlier. So this plant was shut down in February for very valid reasons. Kids were getting sick. There were bacterial infections arising from some of their products. The whole factory needed to be you know, cleaned or what have you. Um, so that was a necessary regulation. But in the depths of a heated news cycle over this, one that they should have anticipated because the New York Times, Washington, Wall Street Journal, half a dozen no local outlets were writing about this in January shortages. All of a sudden, the factory opens right back up import barriers that had prevented Americans from importing baby, uh, baby formula from Europe disappear. All of a sudden, you could have just done this with the flick of a switch. And if it was that easy, then it was always that easy. And it was never about you know the, the proper conduct of regulatory oversight. It was about protectionism. And it was about uh, a hypervigilant government that had overstepped its remit to the detriment of American consumers. And that's the sort of case that's easier to make by virtue of Joe Biden's actions. You know, I mean, the only thing I want to really push back on is it, I think it is far from clear that uh, the Abbott plant was sickening kids. Uh, something was going on and administrators said that Abbott was not maintaining sanitary conditions and procedures. But this was not a one to one that this plant was making people sick. Abbott does not, Ab they, Abbott says that's not the case, that they did an inspection and sort of like a health inspection. It was like, oh, someone's got a cup of coffee next to, the, you know, I don't know what it was, but someone's got a cup of coffee next to the terminal. You know, that's not safe. And then they trigger this very, very, very broad. It's not like 
factories that make these products are shut down all the time. They're not. This was kind of like that. This has the feeling that, you know, uh, there's a new sheriff in town. You guys have been doing it the way you want. Well, we're walking around and we're going to look, we're, we're going to, we're going around and with a microscope and you know what you're not doing right. We're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks to make the point here. And the thing is fine. You want to do that? Great. Now, what are the consequences going to be? Are you willing to shoulder the consequences? Uh, I mean, that story in the airport says Abbott has strongly denied any of its plants product killed or sit much less sickened infants. Okay. So somebody made the decision that they were going to, you know, they were going to be a hard ass on Abbott, which is again, fine. If that's the world you want to live in. And if the world you want to live in is the one that Abe says, where it's like, okay, we got regulatory agencies. Let's let them regulate. Let's let them scare these companies, these core, terrible corporatist businesses that are only interested in profits and don't care about children. You know, let's scare, let's scare them to make sure that they do, they do the right thing. And then you get the unintended consequence. And then like, you know, like proof rock, you know, the administration says, no, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all, except that's the only thing that matters. Doesn't matter that somebody had a coffee cup next to the machine. What matters is that they stopped making baby formula. And you know what else? I, I just, as I continue this rant, somebody said, well, you know, it's terrible because this, this country only has four factories that make baby formula. You know what? That's actually a lot of factories that make baby formula. Like, I don't think any other country in the world has multiple factories making industrial baby formula. Um, and it in just part shows because you. of the trade barriers designed to protect the industry. Fair enough. Okay. So, and, uh, and not just the industry to protect our regulatory regime, because the trade barriers are in part up. We use FDA regs to say that the stuff that comes in from Europe, the baby for is not safe enough. Because we have our own standards and our standards say they should be like this and they don't, they have a different set of protocols. And so they don't test for things that we test for. And so they're not allowed here. But again, you then have to ask yourself, well, what the hell is that about? Are European children dying from bad baby formula? Do they have worse outcomes than we have just because they have a different regulatory regime? What, what, what's going on there? Is this vanity about our regulatory regime? Is that what it is? You know, there is some of that. It's like, well, we have our ways of doing things here in America. You may not have those ways in Germany, so, but that's we're Americans and we have our own way of dealing with it. It's just interesting. I'm just saying that in general, certain types of conservative arguments about how government works badly are hard to make because you can't point to the consequences. Every now and then it arises, like uh, environmental regulations going too far often comes home to people when they shut down an entire dam because of a 30, you know, of a half an inch long parasite that lives in the dam. Or, you know, an entire project is shut down because of something or other, and thousands of people are put out of work. And then it's like, wait a minute, what the hell is this, right? But for the most part, 
a lot of this is invisible. But, you know, you make it about baby formula and that hits the just and the unjust alike. Because, you know, he uses a lot of baby formula. A lot of rich people are using baby formula because they don't want a nurse and they or they don't have time or they don't want to pump or they don't have, you know, they're working or whatever it is. And they're the ones who are going to be inconvenienced and they're the ones who are going to go into the newsroom or email the slack in their news setting and say, something's going on with baby formula. I was driving around for an hour looking for it. The shelves were empty. Well, it's also just bad optics for, I mean, even people who don't have infants. I, I mean, I have teenagers. I don't need to look for baby formula right now. You either know people who do have young children who need formula, or you just are compassionate enough to think this must be horrifying for the parents of young children who rely on this for the for feeding their children. And it's just the optics are very bad if you're looking at it from a political perspective, because you don't actually need it to be just the parents who are affected. It just seems bad that a nation is as prosperous and large as our own can't figure out something that, that seems so basic. Look, if you think that didn't have a play a role in Trump's losing in 2020, I mean, when, when in the summer of 2020, supermarket shelves were often bare, you know, certainly of paper products, right? There were all those runs on toilet paper and paper towel and things like that. That is not a look that Americans are used to. And it's like something bad is happening in this country. Like I'm supposed to go into a Walmart and they're supposed to have everything and they don't have everything there. This is all that's all Walmart is, is the store that has everything. And suddenly they only have 80 percent. Remember the whole thing with the supply chain? It's like, well, it's only 85 percent of 15 percent of the products that are affected. That's a lot of product. That's a lot of stuff to be missing. And Americans are not used to the idea that they have to live with cert a certain amount of scarcity. Other countries do. Almost every other country, you know, has some product that's being rationed or some, you know, for whatever reason. And that's not us. And Trump suffered the consequences of that. And Biden is going to suffer the consequences of this. And there it was baby formula. And it could be something else because if you think that because what happened here with the FDA is a lesson that they're going to ruefully learn and then they're going to like go through the executive branch making sure that regulatory agencies don't go crazy and do stupid stuff before November that's going to make them look bad, they don't have the they don't understand this. They think that this was not as we do a kind of foregone conclusion about overempowerment of regulation. They think it was just a kind of giant misunderstanding or a big mistake that they then fixed. But I don't think so. And I think more there could be more to come. We just don't don't know what it is. And with that, we will bid you a fond farewell until tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noam John Pot Horitz. Keep the candle burning.